All right, kiddos, you guys come down here. You can meet, uh, I don't know who's up today. Buford? No? Mary? Oh, Hills are up. Yeah. Meet Heath and Miranda down here at the front. If you've got a Bible, you can open up to Revelation chapter 14 this morning. Revelation chapter 14. And I have asked uh, Heaven to come down this morning, and she's going to read from us. So if you would please stand as we honor the reading of God's Word out of Revelation chapter 14, starting in verse 14. Go, you got it. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud like one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. Put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven and he too had a sharp sickle and another angel came out of the, from the altar. The angel who has authority over the fire and he who called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle. Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood, or sorry, and blood flown from the wine press as high as the horse's bridle from 1600 stadia. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've given us. I thank you for your word. Uh, today, I, I pray that uh, this would be a, a good, comforting message for all of us, that because of what Jesus has done, there's blood enough for all of us who believe. Uh, we love you, and we thank you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you, heaven. So for, for the last two weeks, basically the message has gone like this. You have to choose a side, right? Nobody's, nobody's neutral. You have to pick a side. So you're either with the lamb or you're with the dragon, but there is no middle ground. And so as we've looked at chapters 12 through 15, what we've seen is that we're in the middle of, of this great cosmic battle that's been raging for thousands of years and that we are players in this battle. And last week, what we said was that while the dragon, Satan, and his unholy trinity, the beast, which is just dragon-manipulated political power, right? Any, any, uh, any government that moves out from underneath God and the false prophet, which is dragon-manipulated religious power, trying to get us to look away from Jesus and look to either a political ideology or a political figure, as those three, this unholy trinity, is roaming the earth, trying to take as many people with them as we, they can, the church of Jesus Christ, us believers, we are fighting back along with angelic beatings, and we're fighting back with the gospel. And so what he told us last week is that we have a message to proclaim, that we're to tell people to fear God, to give him glory. So because of what Jesus has done for you, because of his life, because of his death, because of his resurrection, then turn away from your sin and trust in Jesus and follow him. We're to remind people that Babylon has fallen. This unholy system of the world that we live in has fallen. It's over. It's done and so we need to choose sides with the side that's winning. That's Jesus. And then finally, we just tell people the truth about hell. 
And we talked about that last week, that that makes us uncomfortable. Even me as a pastor going, man, I don't want to read this stuff about hell and everybody burning and all that stuff. But, but we have to tell them the whole gospel. You, you can't just tell them the fluffy parts. We've got to tell them the whole truth that hell is real. And as we said last week, there's not a person in hell who didn't choose hell. We choose hell when we side against the lamb. We experience hell in this life when we continue to walk in our sin and it gets to the point where as Paul says in Romans 1 that God just gives us up to our sin to run in it. But we have to choose a side. And John ends that section last week by calling all of us to endure. That as followers of Jesus, we can expect persecution, we can expect to suffer, but we have to take heart because Jesus has won the day and the one who dies in the Lord is blessed and they will receive rest from all their labors. In a June 1999 comic strip, Peanuts comic strip. So Charlie Brown's laying there on his beanbag chair. Those of you who used to read Peanuts, right? He was always on his beanbag chair. Sally walks in the room, and here's what Sally says. She goes, I memorized the Bible verse we were supposed to memorize for Sunday. Charlie Brown, what verse? Sally, I don't know. Now you made me forget. Sally, maybe it was something Moses said or something from the book of reevaluation. Charlie Brown, forgetting is not always a bad thing. Now, Daryl Johnson, who I have to give credit, like influenced me so much in this sermon. He tells us this. He says, it's not a bad mistake, for that is precisely what revelation was intended to do. Revelation should cause us to seriously reevaluate how we understand the flow of history, how we understand what is going on in the world and in our lives, and how we understand the place of Jesus Christ in the universe. The document was written to cause a radical reevaluation of power, suffering, and of the consequences of everyday decision making. See why we can't remain neutral? You see why I say, and I've been saying, we have to pick a side? See, the question for each and every one of you sitting in this room today is never will I be a disciple. That's not the question. Every person on the face of the globe is a disciple of someone or some ideology. The question is always, whose disciple will I be? The question is, never will I be influenced by a spirit. The question is always, of all the spirits in the world, to which spirit Will I yield? The question is never will I live by the values of a kingdom. The question is always of all the kingdoms competing for my allegiance, by whose values will I live? Again, Daryl Johnson tells us this. The question is never will I wear a set of glasses through which I will look out at the world and try to make sense of what's going on and my place in it. Everyone wears a set of glasses Everyone has a set of deeply held basic presuppositions about how things are. The question is always, whose set of glasses will I wear? So the question is never, will I be a disciple? The question is always, whose disciple will I be? That's pretty good. See, that's why I keep telling you, you gotta pick a side. Nobody's neutral. You're either with the lamb, when the trajectory of your life is moving in that direction, in the direction of Jesus, or you're with the dragon, and the trajectory of your life is moving in that direction. And what we told you last week was this, the biggest problem we have in our part of the world, and the greatest sign that we've chosen to side here, is that we're just indifferent. We're indifferent about it all. We, we hear the message of the gospel, we hear about what Jesus has done, and we go, yes and amen, and then we do nothing. We're indifferent. 
See, if Babylon has fallen, if the dragon has been defeated, then why should we be driven by that which has fallen? Why do we try to keep pace with that which is collapsing? I saw a great example of that this week. Uh, I was talking to, to Ben and he had just had lunch with a BGC rep, a Baptist convention rep. And he was talking about how in 2020, there was not a church in America that did not make budget because giving was so much. Because what happened in 2020? Everybody's like, oh man, I love church. I can't go anymore. I love church. Church is awesome. Now that we're back to 2021 and it's almost over, kind of ran its course, didn't it? And he was talking about how churches all over the country, they're right back to where they were in 2019. They're struggling to make budget again. They're struggling to bring in money again. And you want to know why that is? It's because the churches decide whose disciple they're going to be. And he made this comment, and I thought it was very telling. He goes, Vegas is starting to get the money that was going to churches again. Oh. See, why, why choose sides with that which is collapsing? Before John was sent to Patnamas, he said this in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 17. He said, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. See, the point of chapters 12 through 15 has been to wake us up. We're trying to get us to see the urgency that we should live our lives, the urgency we should have to share the gospel with the world and to push back the darkness all around us. It's to show you and I that decisions have consequences, especially about who or what we'll worship. So no matter how big or small, all of our worship decisions have consequences. E. Stanley Jones said it this way. He said, sow a thought, you reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, you reap a character. Sow a character, you reap a destiny. So with all that being said, every one of us ought to be a little bit humbled right now, especially the guy on the stage. Because if we're honest, there are areas of our lives where we know we're serving and we're following the dragon. There's areas of our lives where we've made bad decisions and those bad decisions are reaping for us a destiny. And so if that's the case, what do we do? I mean, what do you do with your bad decisions? Is there a place where our bad decisions can be forgiven and cleansed and then we can be given a new set of habits leading to a new character and a new destiny? Well, there is. And that's the point of what Revelation 14, chapter, uh, uh, verses 14 through 20 show us, right? So look with me again. Chapter 14, we're just going to read it again. This is what heaven read earlier. So John looks, he sees a, another vision. And he says, look, and behold, a great white cloud and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God, and the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. 
So remember, it's never what happens next, it's what John sees next, and John sees another vision. And what he sees is one like a son of man. We saw this back in Revelation chapter 1, verse 13. And in the midst of the lampstands, the midst of his church, was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. This is an allusion to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, where we see one like a son of man, and there's not a person on the planet that doesn't agree that that's Jesus Christ, that is God the Son. And so here in chapter 14, we see God the Son coming to reap the crop from the seeds of the gospel that the church and the angels have sown. So here's the issue, though, with this text of Scripture, and people argue back and forth on it. So when does this reaping take place? So is this reaping of souls an end times thing only? Is it only at the end of time when the Son of Man reaps, or could it be that, that this is taking place right now as we speak? I would argue that this is happening now. And my argument is based on scripture. John chapter four, verse 35. What did Jesus say? Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for the harvest. So the harvest is now. The harvest is ripe now as we sow seeds of the gospel. And John's going to use two images to describe this. First, reaping grain in verses 14 and 16 and reaping grapes in 17 and 20. Most believe it's an allusion to Joel chapter three, verse 13, that says, put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread for the wine press is full. The vats overflow for their evil is great. And the debate is this on this text of scripture, and it is a debate. Are these two sides of the same coin or are they two different actions on the part of Jesus and his disciples? So, so many do take these as two different actions. And for sure, when you read it, you're like, oh yeah, it's there. I, I completely see it, and I don't think it's necessarily wrong. So in one action, Jesus reaps the harvest of what he has sown, and then the second angel reaps the harvest of judgment that unrepentant people have sown for themselves. It's there. It's the judgment of the righteous, and it's the judgment of the wicked. But others say that both of these are not about judgment, but about salvation, and it's not minimizing judgment. Listen to me, judgment is real, judgment is coming, but Jesus' actions here as the reaper are not judgment, they're salvation. And that's what I would argue. Because if you study these actions closely, you'll see that they parallel each other. So first, Jesus comes out with a, harvest, uh, with a sickle to harvest the grain. And then an angel comes out with a sickle to harvest the grapes. In the wheat harvest, the angel says, hey, put your sickle in and reap, for the hour to reap has come. In the grape harvest, an angel calls and says, put your sickle in and reap the grapes. Now, we have a problem there. All right, I know you're Baptist and you don't know anything about wine. <laughs> but do you, you harvest wine with a sickle? No. You don't, right? We live down in Plains, and, and that's kind of turned into wine country down there. there, there there's, there's vineyards everywhere. You don't, you don't harvest grapes with a sickle. You, you just don't. So, so John's not using this imagery of the sickle in a strictly agricultural way. That's not what he's doing here. See, both of these actions appear to be about the same thing. Both of these actions appear to be about salvation. When the Bible talks about reaping, it never talks about it as a sign of judgment, ever. Go look it up. You can go through the whole Bible and it never uses reaping as a way to say that there's judgment coming. Reaping is always used to gather what is sown. It's always used to talk about, to bring in what one wants to keep. 
In Mark 4, 29, but when the grain is ripe at once, he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. He's bringing it in. He wants to keep it. Back to John 4, 35 through 38. Do not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent, to you, I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. So Jesus is saying, hey, you're, you're reaping it. You're bringing it in. You're not judging it. You're bringing it in. You're, you're wanting to keep that. So Jesus, in the first half of this text, in verses 14 through 16, he swings his sickle to bring in the harvest of those who have responded positively to the gospel message. He doesn't say anything here about throwing chaff into the fire, only that Jesus is out there gathering the harvest. So as you and I are spreading the good news of Jesus, souls are being saved and Jesus is bringing them in. He's bringing them in now. He'll continue to bring them in all the way up to the point that he drops the curtain on history. That's why it's so important that we continue to share the gospel. Now with the grape harvest, the angel says, gather the harvest from the vine of the earth. Throughout the Old Testament, in the books of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Micah, Zechariah, Malachi, that phrase refers to Israel. The vine of the earth. It's always in reference to the people of Israel. But... In John chapter 15, right, yellow room class, Jesus takes that phrase and he changes it, doesn't it? In John chapter 15, what does Jesus say? I'm the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. So remember, we've got to always remember what those seven churches heard whenever this letter was being read. We cannot make it mean something to us that it did not mean to them. So they're hearing this letter read. They're hearing, hearing John's letter read to them and they're listening about this vine and about who the true vine is. And when they read it, they would have gone, that's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the vine. This is a text about him. And then when they get to the part about outside the city, they immediately would have known what that meant. Now, hear me. Later on in Revelation twenty-two fifteen, there is going to be an outside of the city. Not one of us want to be a part of that outside of the city. You don't want to be. I, you know the old joke, so-and-so dies and St. Peter met him at the pearly gates? I tell people at every funeral, that joke's got a little bit of truth to it. Heaven is a gated community. You aren't getting in unless you know Jesus. And so one day you're going to be outside that city. That is not where you want to be. But here, in this text of scripture, it means something completely different. Where was Jesus crucified? Outside the city would remember the parable of the workers in the vineyard in Matthew 21. That parable was a reference to God sending his only son and what happened to the son of the vineyard worker? They killed him. Where did they kill him? Outside the city. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 12 through 13, where I read this earlier. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. See, what John wants you and I to see is that outside the city is where salvation happened. Outside the city is where salvation is experienced. So the wine press outside of the city is a reference to the cross. That that is where the wrath of God against your sin and my sin was poured out on his only son. 
John, Paul tells us, Romans 3, 21 through 26, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Remember that bad decision thing we talked about? That's all of us. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and they're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins Right? Remember, that just means that, that he passed over those because he knew there was a place where he was going to punish them fully and completely, and that was the cross. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that we might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And then you get to verse 20, which is probably one of the scariest verses in Revelation. And this is why I get so angry sometimes about Revelation, because we read stuff like this, and people have turned it into this book that they're like, blood flowing to the horse's bridle? It's on average about four feet, depending on the hands of the horse, but on average it's about four feet. And then you're like, 1600 stadia? That's like 180 miles. Like, I want to get vacuumed out of here before I see that much blood. I don't want to have anything to do with that. And so we avoid revelation because we read stuff like this and it's scary and we're like, I, I don't know what to do with that. All John's trying to get you to see is that the judge has shed his blood for you. That there is blood enough for all of your sins to be covered. That there's blood enough for those of us who choose to come in under the blood, we can be saved, we can be forgiven, we can be redeemed. That it's the blood of Jesus, the vine of the earth, and it's the blood of the people who suffer with him that make this being gathered in in verses 14 through 16 possible. So the reason that Jesus can bring in the harvest is because he shed his blood for you and he shed his blood for me. See, Daryl Johnson tells us that 1,600 is four times four, 10 times 10, times 10. Four is the number of humanity, the number of creation, four corners of the earth, four winds, four living creatures before the throne. 10 is the number of completeness, 10 commandments, 10 fingers, 10 toes, etc. Four times four, lots of humanity. 10 times 10, completely lots of humanity. 1,600? It's also 40 times 40, which is the traditional number of sinful disobedience. Do you see what John is saying? There is blood enough to cover all those who repent. So no matter what you've done, no matter where you are, no matter whether you're young or old, there is blood enough to cover your sins. He's saying Jesus' sacrifice is enough for you. Like you don't have to work for it. You don't have to earn it. All you have to do is come under the blood and you're his. And as John has repeatedly showed us, and this is comforting, if you've come under the blood, Jesus will never lose one of his children. Not one. Mariah just sang about it before the throne of God. We, we stand in his presence and he closes his hand on us. And it's not because you've done anything. It's because there's enough blood to cover everything. So while the dragon and his beast keep coming up against the people of God, Jesus is harvesting right now. So we continue to share the gospel and Jesus will continue to bring in the harvest. And I need every Christian to look at me. Nobody is too far gone that Jesus can't save them. And I think we forget that sometimes as Christians. I had a lunch with a, with a good friend uh, the other day and he, he used to be a pastor for 30 years and he got smart and now he's a gin manager um, 
I almost signed a contract the other day. Um, but he told me this story about the last church he was at and uh, this couple that started coming to church. And so the couple was living together. Uh, she had two kids and he had moved in with her. Uh, and they just started coming to church. Well, they heard the gospel. Well, they got saved. And he baptized the man and he said, you know, he was a young Christian. We we're still working on the whole, hey, we need to get married, not live together thing. Uh, and he said about a month had passed and all of a sudden she comes in his office one day, slams the door and slams her hand on his desk and goes, you need to go tell him to marry me. And he was like, okay, whoa, hey, breathe, sit down. What's going on? She goes, well, ever since he got saved, he sleeps on the couch. And she said something else, but it was a little too PG-13 for church, right? And so he said, I walked out in the hall and I looked at that young man and I said, I, I do believe you need to marry this young lady. Well, he went into deacon's meeting and he shared that story. And per usual, several deacons were angry that he would share something like that. But he said, this 80-year-old deacon stood up and he said, I've heard all I need to hear right there. He said, if Jesus can do that much for somebody then nobody's too far gone to be saved. This is what John's trying to get you to see, is that if you don't know Jesus, you are under wrath, but there is blood enough for you to come in under and come out from underneath the wrath of God. We've said this from the very beginning. We all make wrong decisions, and there is a remedy for wrong decisions. John's telling you, he's telling me, that there's, blood, there's a bloodbath where wrong decisions can be forgiven and cleansed and where new habits leading to a new character which lead to a new destiny can be formed. So we are in a war, we have to choose a side. So what I'm trying to tell you, and I've said it for three weeks now, come in under the blood before it's too late. And Christians, some of you need to hear this. You have to keep preaching and living out the gospel. No matter how much flack you get, keep announcing that the hour has come. Keep telling people that Babylon has fallen. Turn and worship the living God. Don't ever think that somebody's too far gone. There's blood enough for the sins of the world. The hour has come. And then chapter 15 introduces us to this final series of judgments that will be poured out on the world. And then it encourages us. So I told you he always bookends the section with good news. So the whole book is bookended with good news. I'm the beginning and the end. I'm the alpha and the omega. He ends, I'm the beginning and the end. I'm the alpha and the omega. He starts chapter um, 14. Remember the 144,000? That's us, Christians. We're in heaven worshiping Jesus. He gets to the bad news in the middle, and now he's gonna bookend it one more time with good news. So look at verse 15, verse one. He says, then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last for with them, the wrath of God is finished. And to, verse two, and I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. So verse one, intros the bowls of wrath. That's for next week. But then verse two goes back up to heaven and it shows those who had conquered the beast. That's believers. They've endured, they've held fast, they've made it to the end. And we face down the worst the beast can throw at us from social ostracization to persecution, maybe even death for some of us. I don't know. We don't compromise. We don't waver. We conquer, we endure. And it says that victory comes by facing the worst the beast can throw at us and we remain faithful. 
I got to remind myself that all the time. I've struggled with it lately. My job is not numbers. My job is faithfulness. That's it. He didn't ever call me to have a mega church. He called me to be faithful. That's your job. Be faithful. Endure. And notice we stand beside a sea of glass. Anytime you read about the sea in the Bible, it's always a scary place. It's always chaotic. It's always a place of wrath. Remember the, the, the dragon raises up one beast out of the sea. Uh, it's a place of, of judgment. But in heaven, I want you to notice, it's calm. It's calm. It's like glass. And we stand and it says that, that we sing the song of Moses. We sing the song of Moses. I love that because the Bible is the story of Exodus writ large. The Exodus story is repeated throughout the Bible. We're now in our Exodus stage. We're awaiting our final Exodus when Jesus, the better Moses, will return to lead us to the promised land. And once Jesus comes to take us from the promised land, it says that we're going to sing the song of Moses. But notice what else it says. We're going to sing the song of the Lamb as well. What's curious to me is that it's not the line of Judah who conquers. It's the Lamb who conquers. It's the lamb who was slain. It was the lamb who pours out his blood. That's the one who conquers. And it says we sing the song of Moses and the song of the lamb. And the reason it's worded this way, because he's saying the song of Moses is going to be sung in a new way because of the lamb. Now you can go back to Exodus 15. You can read the song of Moses. It's sung every Passover. It's still sung by Jewish people today. But when we sing it in heaven, it'll have new meaning because when Jesus our Passover lamb was slain, God won a greater victory. I mean, it's one thing to rescue people from Egypt, it's another to rescue people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, is it not? And I want you to notice in verse three and four, look how God-oriented the song is. So much different than our modern worship songs that talk about me, 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 and all that I'm gonna do. Look what it says. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Dressed and true are your ways, O King of the nation. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. See, the point is that the Lamb's people don't sing about what they've accomplished. You didn't save you. You didn't shed your blood to redeem people from all mankind. They know that they aren't the saviors. They know that they can't redeem themselves. And so it means when we get to heaven, we won't sit back and take credit for anything. In heaven, all glory and honor and praise and power will go to the Lamb. So my question this morning is this, is do you belong to the Lamb? Because if you don't, you can come under the blood today. You can have your sins forgiven. You can be a part of God's family. And you too one day can sing the song of Moses and the Lamb with me in heaven. You can thank him for what he's done to save you. Your life can be changed by Jesus. That's the point of the book of Revelation is that every decision we make has consequences. Who we worship has consequences. So who you worship determines your destiny. So what's it going to be? So Christians, if you say you've come under the blood of the Lamb, then remember this is the book of reevaluations. <laughs> Has that message changed your life at all? Are, are your habits leading to a new character and a new destiny? Are you able to genuinely stand here and sing, Jesus is better? Are you able to say that Jesus is better than all my sorrows, that Jesus is better than my money, that Jesus is better than my family, that no matter what happens to me, it's only Jesus and that's what I'm after, that's what I'm pursuing? Can we say that? 
If not, listen, there's blood for all your sins today too. Come back in under the blood. Ultimately, what we have to do as believers is we have to get our eyes off of what has fallen. This world is over. It's done. We're going to see that in the coming weeks is that nations will fall. You can look at the trajectory of nations and it ain't looking good for ours. So, so if your eyes are still on that which is fallen, you're going to be disappointed. And so what John's trying to get you to do is this. Get your eyes off of what's fallen. Get your eyes off of yourself and get your eyes back on a crucified Savior whose blood is enough for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day and thank you for all that you've given us. I thank you, as we've read about today, that there is a bloodbath where our bad decisions can be forgiven, where we can be made new. I thank you that it's not my blood that was shed, but it was the blood of Jesus Christ, the lamb who was slain, the better Passover lamb who died to redeem humanity. And that for those of us who respond positively to that message, he is currently right now reaping a harvest of souls. So if there's anyone in here today that does not know Jesus, that has never come in under the blood, I pray that today as the gospel was preached, that hearts were open and that you saved in this room and that they would not leave without grabbing Joe or myself or, or a trusted friend to say, hey, I came in here not knowing Jesus, but today I know him. And then for the rest of us as believers, even as Christians, we still struggle. We still have dark nights. We still have difficult times where we wonder, is, is the blood enough for us? And I pray today that we would be reminded oh so gently that yes, that there is blood enough even for us, even in our shortcomings and even in our struggles, and that we would take our eyes off ourselves and all the ways that we're, we're still struggling and all the ways that we're still blowing it and that we would turn our eyes back up to see the lamb who was slain and that now we would stand and we would sing with all that we have to the one who died, to the one who shed his blood for us. And it's in your name we pray, amen. If you would please stand.